Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We're uh, working through the Lord's Prayer this summer, this, this place in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, pray then like this. Um, he blazes this trail for us, if you will, on prayer. Uh, by the way, just want to remind you too, before I forget, August 15th, we're going to baptize folks right in here during the gathering. So uh, that's been on the newsletter. It's, it's continuing to come at you via our social media updates and all of that. And if you have not yet downloaded Church Center, uh, that's where all of the news comes through as well. So go ahead and check that out. Um, don't forget, baptisms, if you want to be baptized, following the Lord's command to identify with Him through baptism, signifying death and burial and resurrection in union with Him, uh, please uh, let us know. We want to uh, get you on the list and, and get you baptized. And in fact, we'll probably pack some extra sweats and towels for anybody who wants to get baptized in the moment too. So that's fair. Uh, Bethany just heard that and thought, I have to buy sweats and towels. <laughs> She's literally putting it on a note right now. She's like, Matt's not going to remember we had this conversation. All right. <clears throat> Where were we? The Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6. Jesus blazes this trail for us on conversation with the God who initiates the conversation. How do you even talk to the God of heaven? How do you speak to the one who spoke everything into existence. Jesus blazes this trail for us and says, this is how you speak to the God who first spoke. And, uh, and what we've seen so far in the invocation, the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, our Father, is we've seen the basis of prayer. How do we, the whole basis of our praying life is, is really built on the relationship Jesus has with the Father. We get in on his relationship with the Father. We get in on that, sharing in his intimate fellowship with the Father through our union with Christ, which is what we celebrate in baptism. Uh, it's not the right words. It's not, we don't begin the sermon, or we don't begin prayer with this place of, I need to have all the right words, or I need to have enough words, or I need to have my spiritual resume in order. No, we get into an intimate relationship with God through Jesus' own relationship with the Father. He's our Father through Christ. Then we see, hallowed be your name, gives us the right orientation to prayer. How am I to be postured in prayer? We get in on a posture appropriate to God by sharing in Jesus's adoration of the Father. We want God to be God and utmost in our life. And now we come to the second petition, if you will, in the Lord's Prayer, and that's really the longing of prayer. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The longing of prayer. A kingdom come. I think I went for most of my Christian life without ever really hearing any sermon about the kingdom of God. I read it in the Gospels, and I don't think for at least the, the first 15 years of my faith, I don't think I heard a single sermon on the kingdom of God. In fact, when I became a Christian, I was a child. There was something mysteriously compelling to me about Jesus. There was a, a message about Jesus that was put before me, and he seemed to be this compelling person. Uh, that's all I could tell you. The, the basic message, though, of what I understood was that if you wanted to go to the good place and avoid the bad place, there was a prayer that you prayed, and it only would work if you really meant it. 
that was, I don't know if anybody else had a similar experience in their conversion story, but like, there's a bad place and a good place. If you want to go to a good place, pray this and mean it. And it's a very rudimentary kind of call to conversion. Uh, but the focus was really kind of on the mechanics of salvation. Here's how someone appropriates salvation, whatever it is that might mean. And it was a very abstract kind of thing, this abstract idea of heaven. And so the basic how to be saved prayer was um, what many churched folks hear growing up or over the years and from their pulpits. And it's kind of this message of um, someday else, when you die, you can go someplace else, heaven, um, which I don't know if that sounds like good news. Like, I look forward to vacations, and that sounds like the ultimate vacation. So, okay, sign me up. What meeting do I have to attend to get the free airfare and two nights of hotel? Uh, and so it's this kind of odd sales pitch. And this is not a comment, by the way, on the sincerity of those who introduced me to Jesus. Uh, my initial conversion to Christ uh, it was something that marked my life for good forever. And um, however, what I would tell you is um, even all my early Bible reading was a practice of confirmation bias. Have I believed the right thing? Do I have it down right? Uh, getting the right answer seemed to be the primary emphasis. And so I had this hermeneutic of confirmation bias. Had nothing to do with the kingdom of God, but just did I pray the right prayer? Or did I mean it enough? Um, when I ended up in a college that taught Bible and theology, I learned really for the first time uh, about how to read a text. And you read a text looking for an author's meaning, because an author is a person who means something. And so the only respectful way to engage an author is to figure out what they mean right? No marriage is great when you're always interpreting uh, your spouse through your lens, right? The best way to have a marriage is to go, I'm, I'm having a hard time understanding what you're meaning. Can you tell me what you mean, right? You let th them tell you what they mean with their words, and this is what we do when we come to texts. And it seemed to me that the more I engaged the scriptures for myself and tried to understand the authors of scripture on their own terms, the salvation that was being offered in Jesus had a lot to do with something called the kingdom of God, that it was actually the central and primary emphasis of the entire New Testament. There's this thing called the kingdom of God. Uh, the, the, the message of Jesus in the Gospels was not, here's how to get to heaven when you die, but heaven has broken in to the present broken, rebellious world. So repent and believe the gospel, the good news. The central teaching of Jesus was about the kingdom. Uh, the phrase kingdom of God is all over Mark and Luke. Kingdom of heaven, a synonymous phrase, all over Matthew. John only talks about the kingdom in John 3 and John 18, but throughout the rest, he talks about something called eternal life, which isn't about a quantity of life. It's a quality. It's the life of the age to come, i.e., the kingdom of God experienced now in the present. And so all four gospel authors are absolutely obsessed with Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. That's the central emphasis. The story of the scriptures points us to God's space invading our space, that initially at creation, heaven and earth were married up, but divorced through the sin and rebellion of creatures. 
And the whole point of Jesus' ministry was the dynamic inbreaking of this kingdom of God, marrying up heaven and earth once and for all. A brief survey of the New Testament reveals just how central this notion is. Uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 is going around preaching and proclaiming the good news gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom. In Mark's introduction to Jesus' ministry, Jesus says the time is fulfilled, right? Not here's how to be saved, but the kingdom has come. Repent and believe the good news. Turn and trust the good news. What's the kingdom? Most simply, here's a kind of working definition. It's the reign and the rule of God. It's this administration or governance of God. The idea that he's king, that he has a people and a domain and a sphere under which things are ordered by his rule and his love and his grace. And it's this dynamic reality of that rule breaking in dynamically into the present while also still being not yet fully realized. And so the basic longing of the Christian is to see God's space, God's way of ruling, God's administration permeate the universe because it's good, it's true, it's just, it's right. And so to long for the kingdom admits that the entire world is out of joint. To say your kingdom come is to recognize that it's not all here, that the world is not the way it's meant to be, that there's been a rebellion, a coup in the cosmos, and we're longing for the world to be set right. Therefore, to long for the kingdom is to long for the world to be set the way it's supposed to be. To long for the kingdom and pray your kingdom come is to have an honest assessment of the world. It's neither pessimistic or optimistic. It just longs for the world to be the way it's meant to be and trusts that God will and can make it so. And it can't be set right apart from the kingdom, that the whole thing's out of joint until the king sets it right. Uh, by the way, you also can't have a kingdom without a king. And so non-kingdom is chaos and rebellion, and so we're longing for the world to come under the king's rule. And so this morning, what I want to do is offer you six statements that help explore what we mean and what we pray when we say, your kingdom come. What are we doing when we're saying, as Christians, your kingdom come? Uh, the first thing is this, that your kingdom come gives words and specificity to the Christian's deepest longing. Let me say that again, that the, the prayer, your kingdom come, gives voice, gives words to the Christian's deepest longing. I've met a lot of Christians who've thought a lot about what they affirm or deny. This is good, right? Uh, but they've thought very little about what they want. Uh, and, and so as somebody who, by the way, is really fascinated with theological reflection, like I think it's really, really good to think about what you believe. I would also say as a correction uh, to what has been very common, particularly for us Westerners, is we need to pay more attention to what we want, not just what we believe. And so we would never want to downplay play the importance of what we believe, but we have often underplayed the, the power of what we want. 
I don't know how much we reflect on this. Like, what is it that I really deeply want when I reach out to a friend? What is it that I'm wanting when I send a text to a friend? What is it that I want when I need to be alone? What is it that I want when I reach for a device? What is it that I want when I'm looking for affirmation? What do I want when I'm afraid? What do I want when I'm homesick? What do I want when I see people in pain? What is it that I'm longing for when another unthinkable thing comes across my newsfeed? What is it that I want when I'm feeling lonely? See, there's a desire underneath all of life. Remember Jesus, when he describes the good and flourishing life back in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, he describes the, the good, flourishing, blessed, happy person as those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says, they shall be satisfied. This dynamic of the kingdom of God plays into our deep desires. Jesus understands that humans are homo appetitus, or I guess, like we're desiring creatures. We have appetites. And he says, look, the, the truly flourishing person is the one who's hungry for what I give, which is righteousness, right relationship in all directions. And so the arrival of Jesus was celebrated uh, by those who met Jesus as, uh, as the consolation of their deepest longing. Simeon in Luke chapter 2 says, to, uh, says he, he can finally depart in peace because his eyes have seen the consolation of Israel, the thing he's been longing for all of his life. When Jesus comes as a baby, This guy goes, this is all I've ever longed for. At the end of the New Testament, the end of John's revelation, uh, there's this cry for the coming king, this outcry of longing. Jesus' final words in the biblical canon are, surely I'm coming soon, amen. And John adds at the very end of that in response, come Lord Jesus, The deep longing in answer to the good news of the gospel is, Jesus, come, bring your kingdom, bring all that it means to set the world right. And John had just seen a vision of the marriage of heaven and earth, of the kingdom finally coming, where where mourners are comforted, the sick are healed, death is no more, sin is banished forever. And so the longing of John is, come, Lord Jesus, bring that marriage of heaven and earth. And so what we are doing when we pray your kingdom come is to address our deepest longing as those who are followers of Jesus, who have the spirit of God, who transforms our desires from the inside out to align with God's own desires, graciously takes our dead lives and makes them alive in Christ. And so praying your kingdom come confronts all of our competing desires, and it gets me in touch with what I deeply want. As I wake up in the morning And I debate, am I going to try to rule all things today? Or am I going to celebrate the rule of God in my life and long for that to permeate my life? I want God to be God. I want God, excuse me, to bring his kingdom and his life-giving ways over all things. So what do you want when you face your day? Do you deeply want the kingdom? Do you deeply want God's rule and reign to break in. Because what we're saying when we say your kingdom come is we're saying your rule and your reign is the answer to all of my longings. Because you made me for you. You made me, as Augustine says, right, to to be restless 
until I rest in you. The second thing we see when we pray this prayer is longing for the kingdom roots us in God's story. So first of all, it gives words to our deepest longings. Second of all, it roots us in God's story. There are always narratives around us, competing narratives, claiming and clamoring for what we ought to be about in our lives. And so um, there's the narratives of bigger and better, of richer and handsomer or prettier or whatever, more powerful, less vulnerable. This is the American dream. And so the storyline that we are reciting as we say, your kingdom come, is God's story. And we're saying, actually, it's not that I'm living in my little story today, but my story has been co-opted and authored by God, and I'm a part of his story. The whole idea of the kingdom of God brings to our minds the longing of all Israel in exile, waiting for God to take his throne and liberate the captives, defeating Israel's enemies and bringing his promises to fulfillment. Of course, what we see in the gospel stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that longing is answered in a very surprising way. The king comes. God takes up his throne in Zion, in Jerusalem, but he's enthroned not through a military victory. He's enthroned not by defeating his enemies violently, but he's enthroned at the cross. He's lifted up, crowned, and named king of the Jews as he gives his life sacrificially, allowing evil to unleash its worst on him rather than unleashing vengeance on us. In other words, it is a kingdom whose nature is entirely opposite than the kingdoms of the world. As Jesus says to Pilate on trial, his kingdom is not of this world or from this world, of this world's nature, but it has come. And the great enemy of sin and death and devil have all been defeated. This was the preaching of the patristics, the early church fathers, who claimed that Christ is the victor over sin and death. And therefore, we share in his triumph over the powers. And so the the deep corruption of human nature has been dealt with in his death and in his resurrection, that he takes our our sin-corrupted flesh into the grave and has raised the true human And we are united to him by faith, made new creatures. And so he takes humanity out from underneath its subjection to the powers of sin and death and grave, and he comes out the victor. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, we are rehearsing that grand storyline and reminding ourselves that we are the ones who are liberated by his victory, that we are the ones who are set free And to know your part in a story is very important in how you live your life. To know when you are in the story. Uh, To know the plot of the story. It's very freeing to know that the plot of the story is not that you must be the hero of your life. That is the extreme pressure of the moment. You have to be the hero. You determine the meaning of your your life. That's anxiety-producing and soul-crushing. But the Gospels say, no, actually, know your part in the story. You're rescued by the true hero. And he's already achieved the great victory. And so now we're in the part of the story where, yes, there's been this climactic battle. The heroes won. Now the implementation of that victory is being teased out. We're not at the end of the story yet. There's a a faithful work for us to do in, in pointing people to the hero's victory and living in response to that as if it's actually true. But the reality is we're not done yet. There's still conflict in the plot, and you're caught up in it. 
The kingdom's here now and not yet. You're in between, and it explains the tension of your life every day. Like, how can people be so awesome and so terrible? How can Christians be so sinful and so holy? How can the church have so much beauty and so much baggage? We're in a part of the story between the now and the not yet of God's kingdom. Know your part in the story. The third thing, the longing for the kingdom postures us in submission. Longing for the kingdom postures us as subjects. To long for the kingdom is to make the claim that, claim that I'm not the king. I am a subject. I'm not first in line. It decenters my ego and your ego. I was at a, um, uh, a party the other night with uh, some parents of a newly engaged couple. And uh, <laughs> I loved chatting with the mom and dad of the soon-to-be bride. Uh, they're believers in Jesus, and their kids are both walking with Jesus. And we were talking about, like, oh, man, what's that like as you're, you're about to see your grown-up kid, like, peace out and make a really big decision, you know? And uh, we're talking about how critical it is that both of them know and love Jesus. And, and it led me to this comment of, you know, it's so great. It's so great, isn't it, that he answers to somebody above him? Like, isn't that good news for you as a dad of a bride? Like, that guy answers to somebody above him. He doesn't think he's the final answer. That's good news in a marriage, by the way, right? Uh, that, that, that the reality is it's very comforting as a parent to know that if your kids are walking with Jesus and they enter a marriage together, they both are surrendered to Jesus. They're not both in a power struggle. That's why Christian marriage works, because uh, people live surrendered instead of getting locked in this power struggle. Well, a lot of people don't practice that, but that doesn't mean there's a design flaw, right? But when two people are both surrendered and they answer to Jesus, you can kind of trust, well, they're going to work it out. They're going to reconcile and forgive and confront and and serve. And, and so submission is one of those things that's just absolutely culturally like it's, uh, man, you say the word and people are like, what do you mean? Like, isn't that, isn't that like just abusive? You know, we've seen the, the abuse of the language of submission and then we chuck it all together. But when I say your kingdom come, I'm setting the expectation that my life is not a democratic life, that life in the kingdom is not a democracy. I'm setting the expectation for myself that God doesn't respond based on popular vote. Like if we can get enough people for, to pray a certain way, God's going to make a, a change of policy. Like that's not how it works in the kingdom, that God is king. It's not a democracy. And so when I pray your kingdom come, I'm recognizing that there's one king and I'm a subject and I long for his kingdom uh, on earth as in heaven as one who is submitted to that. And so next week, we'll hear more about your will be done, living in, in surrender. But here's this place in prayer where we need to start to work through what, what kingdom am I pursuing today? Am I pursuing my own kingdom? Are my energies surrendered to what God wants, what his longings are for the world? Are they surrendered to my own as if I'm building my kingdom? And so whose kingdom am I working for? I suggest that as we pray this prayer, your kingdom come, there is this opportunity for us to stop and reflect and go, where are my energies going? Who 
Whose kingdom am I surrendered to? Uh, The fourth statement here is longing for the kingdom guards us against small-minded self-interest. I love that line in Ferris Bueller's day off before they wreck Cameron's dad's car. And he's like showering, getting ready for the day. Um, And he like looks at the camera and says, uh, it's not that I support fascism. And he goes, or any ism for that matter. Isms, in my opinion, are not good. Remember Ferris Bueller talking about that? And he says, a person should not believe in an ism. He should believe in himself, which is like a total classic like 80s humanist kind of move. But um, the Christian, also, they reject the isms that are thrust upon us culturally, right? Uh, as, but they also reject Bueller's belief in himself as ultimate. Remember that the Christian is somebody who starts out in the Beatitudes as someone who's poor in spirit. They're bankrupt. They don't, they don't believe in themselves in the sense of like, I think I'm the be-all, end-all, and the ultimate agent of meaning for my life. They go, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I need to be led by a good king. Uh, and so... Uh, unfortunately, though, today, what I would suggest is we have a great deal of divisiveness where Christians have put their faith in a whole lot of isms that are not the gospel. There's a whole lot where we become aligned with some sub-movement, something that reflects goodness, perhaps, but is not ultimate. And, and so, uh, as Christians buy into the isms of our moment, or buy into just belief in myself, we end up corrupting this redemptive work of God uh, by bringing us into his kingdom. So, for example, to long for the kingdom confronts a small-minded way uh, that we identify more with some ism than we identify with Christ himself. Longing for the kingdom confronts perhaps the nationalism that is increasingly present prevalent in our church, uh, not our church perhaps, but the church in North America. The kind of distorted patriotism patriotism that always blends cross and flag and fueled the events around the Capitol back in January continues to fuel a very odd sort of faith and ideology. Uh, To long for the kingdom is to recognize an equal place of all nations before the cross, all brought in and redeemed by the same blood, the same sacrifice. Longing for the kingdom confronts the ways we elevate a race above others. It it recognizes that there's no one group that Jesus loves more than another group. It's not to, to pray for the kingdom, to long for the kingdom is to recognize all humans are liberated from bondage to decay and sin by the cross and the cross alone. It confronts our allegiance to the isms of our day. Longing for the kingdom confronts the various small-minded ways we orient our life and identify. Our calendars are filled oftentimes with only those who are just like us, who only agree with us. Our agenda becomes this inward focus and upward mobility. And so we grab people who are only like us and we only give them our calendar or our resources or our approval or our affirmation or our relationship. But the prayer for your kingdom come immediately gets us outside of all of that, outwardly focused, downwardly mobile, looking across uh, agreements. So when you pray your kingdom come, you're getting your imagination baptized. When you pray your kingdom come, you're recognizing the largeness of the world and the largeness of God's love for the world and the greatness of need in the world to to the, the breadth of God's love for his world. 
And so it replaces our small-minded, self-interested attention span with a global perspective, a cosmic hope, and a a world-embracing kind of posture. So when you pray, thy kingdom come this week, I challenge you, like, who does that force you to think about? Who does that force you to care for that perhaps is difficult to care for? Who does that force you to see as a human loved by God? See, the the fifth idea here this morning that I want to share is that longing for the kingdom also enlists us holistically in the very thing we're longing for. When we pray your kingdom come, more often than not, God responds, okay, great, go ahead, right? God, your kingdom come. And he goes, cool, invite them to dinner. Oh, that's not what I meant. I just wanted to get through to the next part, which was um, like, I want bread. (laughs) It's like, great, I gave it to you, so share it. (laughs) Um, And so God oftentimes takes our prayers and goes, okay, go ahead, your kingdom come, right? All right, great, then be generous with your finances. Uh, Your kingdom come, great, go ahead, quit your job and move to that company that has those ethical standards that aligns with what you deeply want. Or uh, your kingdom come, great, go ahead, go buy that person a meal and ask them about their story. Longing for the kingdom is not passive. Longing for the kingdom enlists us. Think about that word enlist. You're saying I'm in on the action. Put me in, coach. And when we pray this way, we're recognizing that the kingdom does come, that it's not ethereal, it's not abstract, it's not esoteric. But how did it come in the person and ministry of Jesus? It came concretely, it came relationally, it came as a servant. Jesus shows up and he speaks and acts. He tells stories that show the goodness of God and his parables that reveal the gospel. He does things like invites sinners to meals, heals, delivers from evil, washes feet, feeds the crowd, calms the seas. He acts in time and space. I cannot pray your kingdom come and still ignore the poor for long. I can't do it. I can't pray your kingdom come and withhold my bank account from God's mission. Not for long. I can't pray your kingdom come and ignore interpersonal conflict. Uh, without pursuing reconciliation, not for long. I can't keep praying your kingdom come and have no concern for my neighbors. I I can't pray your kingdom come and be unconcerned about my friends who don't yet know Christ, who've not heard or received an invitation to live with the abundant life of his kingdom. I cannot pray your kingdom come and not be struck with gratitude for the beauty of creation around me. I can't pray your kingdom come and be a passive person in this world. And so the longing for the kingdom enlists us into the action. It's a contemplative action. It's not reaction. The world has plenty of reaction. But an active seeking to show God's kingdom is here through how we live our lives, how we are related in community, with an openness and a hospitality, with a servanthood and a generosity. You see, uh, actively... Uh, But when we pray your kingdom come, we become agents. We become foretastes, previews, if you will. Like I'm one of those people who's like, man, I can't wait until October something so I can watch Black Widow for not $30, right? We'll just watch the preview again. (laughs) how, How much does the world around you just need a preview, a snapshot of the life of the age to come, of God being all in all, ruler over all? 
demonstrated through someone who's yielded to him as ruler of your life. This is what it looks like for a human to be set free from guilt and shame. This is what it looks like for a human to be liberated, to be generous and kind and patient and gracious and unified across a whole smattering of opinions that we all say are second place and don't matter near as much as our common loyalty to Jesus as king. The world needs a preview. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, we're getting enlisted on that action. And so the, the kingdom is not primarily some existential reality. Jesus didn't come to save you for a relationship with him by himself and yourself. Yes, a relationship with him, but him as king and Lord, which means actually to belong to his kingdom. It's, a, it's not a small-minded or self-interested kingdom. It's holistic. It's an invitation to be surrendered to the king and actively participate in his mission. Praying this way is very dangerous, by the way. I dare you to pray it this week and mean it like, God, your kingdom come and yield and go, God, spirit of God, show me what that looks like for me in my world today. Because it is actually a, a deeply Christian conviction to long for the kingdom. It's not passive. Perhaps you have more time than you need right now. You're one of those like weirdos that actually has an abundance of time. I salute you. I want to be like you. Right. But maybe that's you today, and you're like, I, I, I don't, like, I've got a window. I've got windows of time. Maybe you can offer that to the Lord. The kingdom can come through the time that you have available. You can be a part of Faithful Friends, one of our partner organizations, and spend time with a kid who just needs a strong, kind, consistent, Christ-like mentor. Uh, perhaps uh, your kids are going to be enrolled in public schools this fall. There's all these places to step in and go, I'm here as a servant. I'm here to help because what we've seen in this last year is crazy need through our Tigard and Beaverton school districts. We're re-engaging partnerships this fall as, as best as we can. Maybe you have space. You, just, you have more square footage than you take up. That's really cool. Maybe you can invite some people in. You could come belong in this space. Make them some drinks. Make them a meal. Hear a story. Whoever God puts on your heart this week, offer hospitality. The best way to, to holistically show the kingdom is to just do Jesus-y stuff on repeat with those around you praying your kingdom come. And then finally, what I would say in longing for the kingdom, we're clarifying our allegiances. We're clarifying our allegiances. I read a book last year called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. It's by a Paul scholar, uh, which is like a job. Like you can be a Paul scholar because there's a bunch of Bible nerds out there who buy their books, like me. And you're like, that's cool. Um, uh, but we, uh, what I appreciated about his book, he does, he does a brilliant job of showing how the biblical notion of faith it, it was never primarily about mental assent. Mental assent is what's required to pass a driver's exam, right? Like you can go to the DMV and you can have all the mental assent that's required to pass a driver. Like, you can click all the right answers. I believe that you have to come to a complete stop at a stop sign before turning. Ask my kids if I believe that. My kids will tell you, my dad believes that stop signs are for slowing down and rolling through slowly. Right? That's what he believes. Right? And so... Biblical faith is not mere mental assent and agreement, 
But there's this fundamental dynamic of faith that is about loyalty and allegiance. And that's what we saw in Abraham's story back in Genesis. Yahweh, the God of Israel, calls Abraham when he's a pagan. And that's not a derogatory term, it's what he was. He was a worshiper of his father's gods in Babylon. And Yahweh says, go to the land I will show you. And he goes, and he ditches the other gods, and he's loyal to Yahweh alone as God. And the whole story of God's mission to redeem all nations comes out of this narrative of someone saying, I'll trust and obey from this loyal allegiance to you as God. The prophets all uh, speak to love of Yahweh, the God of Israel, as foregoing all the other gods, like being in a faithful marriage. And so to wake up in the morning and pray your kingdom come is to clarify our allegiances, to say, okay, you're king of my life today. I'm, I'm loyal to you. To be honest about my competing loyalties as I pray this prayer and go, there's a bunch of competing loyalties I have today, Jesus. I want to put them before you. I want to I live loyal to you. That's my heart posture. I need your wisdom. I need your grace. I need, your, I need your, the, the help of your people around me to see what it means to be loyal to you in all of the competing loyalties to go, who am I serving today? I'm serving you, Jesus is king. And so let me suggest this morning that the best way to long for the kingdom and to keep longing for the kingdom, to keep our allegiance clarified, to keep enlisted in the answer to that longing, to keep sub submissive and surrendered to the king is to keep our eyes on the king. To long for the kingdom requires that we keep our eyes on the king, to see him in all of his majestic beauty and glory, and whose glory, by the way, whose enthronement is as a servant, which brings us to the table where we worship together, and we together long for his kingdom and recognize how it has come. It has come through the body and blood of the Savior King. He says, my kingdom comes, and it comes by my sacrifice. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the kingdom and all of its dynamic wonder and mystery. We thank you that through Jesus it is here now by your spirit. We thank you that it is also yet to come, that there is more to come. The world is still out of joint and we are longing desperately for the kingdom to come in fullness. God, we confess we, we get duped into thinking what we really want is something else. But as we contemplate you and your goodness and your beauty, we confess that our deepest longing is for your kingdom to come. So we are your people surrendered to you, Emmaus, longing for your kingdom and recognizing the one through whom it comes, receiving his grace, your grace today through the bread and the cup that represent to us the body and blood of the King. We love you. We long to be loyal to you. We long to reflect you by your Spirit's grace as agents of your kingdom this week in the places you've called us. In Christ's name, amen.